You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so today we are taking another step in uh, the set of sermons that we're in the middle of called Parable. This is where we're hanging uh, this fall. We are considering the stories of Jesus. And as we're thinking about these stories, we are praying and asking God to take these stories and to use them to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. And so today we are going to think through a parable that's found in Luke chapter 12. We're going to think this through together. It's Luke chapter 12, and the parable is called the parable of the rich Fool. So if you want to make sure you have your Bible out and open on your lap, it would be so helpful if you're going to follow along with us. And the parable starts with what feels like a random question. You see it in verse 13. Um, we read this. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, there's nothing wrong with that request. The request wasn't wrong, but the request did reveal uh, th this man, he brought to Jesus what he thought was an inheritance problem. But Jesus really quickly saw through the inheritance problem and realized, no, this guy has a heart problem. And Jesus is all about exposing the heart problem that, that exists down underneath the inheritance problem. So you see this in verse 14. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, now listen to this amazing verse, verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What an amazing verse. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of of possessions. I would just encourage you to memorize that verse. That is one that we all need on constant recall uh, to be able to, to reawaken our heart to the reality of, of that verse. And, and verse 15 contains both a warning and it contains wisdom. So think about the warning of, of verse 15. Jesus says, take care. Take care. That, that's an active command. T take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, other translations use the word greed there. And I, I think it would be interchangeable. Covetousness, greed, you could even substitute the word in materialism. All of those words would work for that Greek word. So let's just define what is greed. What, what does that word mean? Well, greed or money sickness, here's just a working definition for us, is an inordinate desire for money and material things. It's not just a desire for those things, it's an inordinate desire, an over-desire for money or material things. It's a belief that money is what really matters. I mean, it's what, it's what really matters in life. The, the point are possessions. Uh, greed preaches to us that your, your worth is determined by your wealth. These are all the sort of things that greed is, is planting in our hearts. It's this belief that if our heart is ever going to be truly and fully satisfied, we're going to need things and we're going to need a lot of things. That's the, the way to, to satisfaction. And Jesus is wide awake to the dangers of greed. He knows just how dangerous greed is. He knows that money and possessions have a unique power to lure us away from a love of God. 
He knows that. He knows that, that, that money and possessions have this unique power to seduce us down the rich young ruler's well-worn path. Do you, do you remember that path? It's the path of walking away from God as he walks to his wealth. And Jesus knows this. He, he, he told another parable. Do you remember the parable of the soils that we considered here recently, that third soil? He just says, here's what's going to choke out a love of me. It's just the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, just the cares of this world. Jesus knows the unique danger of money and possessions. He knows that they are a unique hazard in our life, in your life, in my life. I remember years ago uh, reading a book by a persecuted uh, Romanian pastor. And I remember reading this sentence or these couple of sentences in that book. He said this, in my experience, 95% of the believers who face the test of persecution pass it. Now, this is a man who knows persecution. He knows it really, really well. He has suffered greatly. 95% of the believers who face the test of persecution pass it, while 95% who face the test of prosperity fail it. Gosh, that should sober us. That should get us considering this warning. For those trying to find their happiness in money and possessions, money and possessions turn out to be a lot like salt water. The more you drink them, the more dehydrated you become. The more you have them, the more you want of them. This is the reason that Rockefeller, when he was asked, how much is enough? I mean, how much do you need? How much is enough? He responded back by saying, just one more dollar. That, that's how much is enough. J just one more dollar. This is why Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is, the, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Jesus is awake to the dangers of money and possessions in our life. And this is the reason for the warning. Take care. Be on your guard against all greed, against all covetousness, against all materialism. Beware of these things. Look out. Be careful. Now, notice this is a command. This is not a, let me offer you some good advice. No, Jesus is, is giving us a command. Be on guard against these things. They are seductive. They will lure you to your death. And it's a command because greed often operates like a squatter in our life. It gladly comes into the human heart, but then it refuses to leave. And Jesus is saying the only way you keep the squatter of greed out or you get him out is by taking care, setting up serious defenses, being on your guard against greed. Uh, maybe I could put it into in, an illustration for you. If today the police showed up at your house in your neighborhood and they said, we have um, a lead that there is an imminent threat. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but we know it's happening soon. There are going to be violent burglars who are going to be in your neighborhood and they're going to be breaking into houses in your neighborhood. It's going to happen. We don't know when, but it, it is imminent. It's going to happen. What, what would you do? Just think about it. If that was you and the police came and said that to you, what would you do? You'd be on guard. You'd have the doors locked, the windows sealed. You would be on guard, wouldn't you? The alarm system ready to go. You would be active and on guard, which raises the question, 
do you have that sort of a mindset when it comes to money sickness, <laughs> when it comes to greed, when it comes to covetousness? At the beginning of each year, I love to ask people uh, just that simple question of like, what is it that you're proactively asking this year for Jesus to do in you? Like, what is the thing that you are asking just for special grace from the Lord so you can see movement in this area of your life? Like, what are those areas? And over the years, I've heard people say a lot of really great things. But I've never heard anyone ever say, you know what I'm doing this year? I am proactively guarding against greed. That's what I'm asking for. I am asking for the Lord to create in me just a deep new level of generosity. I'm asking for the Lord to do that work in me. I've never heard that. So I think it's, it's valid to conclude that in your life and in my life and our collective life together, that we underappreciate this warning. We don't take it nearly as serious as Jesus takes it. He's commanding and he's saying, your life, your spiritual life is riding on this. Be on your guard. Take care to guard against all greed. There's the warning and then the wisdom. The second half of verse 15. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Oh, that God would burn that into our hearts. That we would really believe that the essence of our life will not be improved by a nicer house, by a bigger house, by a bigger bank account, by a better car, by more luxuries, by more conveniences, that those things will have no bearing on the essence of our life. Gosh, that we would believe that. I remember reading years ago this quote from C.S. Lewis where he said, he who has God and everything... <clears throat> So this is the person who has God and a whole lot of other stuff. He's saying he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. Do you believe that? He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. That's what the Bible is trying to teach us here. That God plus nothing. You can have nothing else. God plus nothing equals everything. Everything your heart needs to be satisfied is found in God alone. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So God offers that warning, that wisdom, and then he tells a parable. And here's the point of the parable. Jesus in this parable is putting greed in story form. That's what's happening in this parable. It's greed in story form. This is a picture of a man who's looking to money and possessions for life, who really does believe his life does consist of the abundance of possessions. His life does hang in the balance of what he has. That's what this man is believing. And then look at verse 20. This is the big point of the parable. This is the big E on the eye This is the thing that the parable is trying to get you to look at, that Jesus is trying to call your attention to. In verse 20, Jesus calls this man a fool. He, this guy's not seeing clearly. And, and when Jesus calls him a fool, it's alerting us to, that's not the category you want to be in, right? You, you don't want to be in the category of fool. You want to be in the category of wisdom. And Jesus in this parable is inviting us out of foolishness and into wisdom. 
Now, here's the question I want to try to answer over the next few minutes. What is it that makes Jesus call this man a fool? Why is he not just the rich man? He's not just that, but no, he is the rich fool. Why is he a fool? Let me just give you a few reasons here. And just look with me at verse 16. Just follow along here. Verse 16 says, and he told them a parable. Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, um, notice here a couple of things. Jesus isn't down on this man's wealth. Uh, Wealth, money is morally neutral. Jesus isn't, he's not down on the guy having things. Notice also that Jesus isn't down on this man's effort toward and his right acquisition of wealth. He's not down on this guy uh, farming and being wise in the things he's doing to accumulate wealth. He's not down on those things. The problem isn't wealth in this story. The problem is the place wealth occupied in this man's heart. That's the problem. Now look at verse 17. And he thought to himself, so the guy's land has just produced in abundant ways. That's verse 16. Now verse 17. And the man, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So just put yourself in his place for a moment. This guy's business is blowing up. I mean, he's got more than he knows what to do with. It is going great for this guy. So he asked a very valid, good, and right question. What should I do with it now? I've got all of this excess, so what am I going to do with these things that that have been given to me? What what am I going to do with them? But but look at verse 17 again. Verse 17 shows us the first problem in this parable. And here's the first problem. Here's the first reason this guy is called a fool. His question was to the wrong person. It was the right question, just to the wrong person. Look at verse 17. And he thought, or you could say, and he asked, himself. This is all an inner dialogue moment here. Now, let's take a step back and ask the question, who should he have asked the question to? What should I do with these things? Who should that question be directed to? God, right? God is the one who should get that question, but not with our man. Our man thought to himself. He asked himself. There's no inclusion of God. There's no concern for the purposes of God. There's no inviting God into this moment, and that's a problem. And it's a problem because the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation show us that God is the owner of everything. Amen? There's nothing in this world that God doesn't own. And God is the owner of everything, gives us, you and I, things, and he expects us to steward what is his. So God is the owner, we're the stewards. We've been entrusted by God with God's things to use in the way that God wants. So God, the owner, is really concerned about us, the stewards, asking the owner what we should do with his stuff. Like, it, like he wants to be a part of that dialogue, a part of that conversation, uh, but not for this man. It, it was all him, his thoughts. It was never, God, I'm listening for you and your thoughts. No, it was, I'm going to ask myself because I've got things I want to do, and I'm going to do the things that I want to do with what I've got. Th- that was this man's inner dialogue. And when that happens, it always leads to the second problem. First problem, his question was to the wrong person. Second problem, he came to the wrong conclusion. Look at verse 18. And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all of my goods. Now, this raises a question. And here's the question that when I read this text, it immediately raises in me. Is it always wrong to build bigger barns? Is that always a wrong thing to do? If you were just reading this text in the Bible, you'd probably come to the conclusion that it is always wrong to do that. But if you read this in the context of the wider sort of scope of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, then we would say, no, it is not always wrong to build bigger barns. Uh, Just as a, for instance, if you own a business, it's not necessarily wrong or bad to reinvest some of the profits back into the business. It's not always wrong to build a bigger barn, to to buy another or a nicer house, to put in a pool or to buy a lake house or to fill in the laundry list of options that that might come, come along with that question. It's not necessarily wrong or always wrong to do that. But here is the other side of that. It might be. So it's not necessarily wrong, but it may be wrong. So you and I, we we all need to pay attention to this man in the parable. It may very well be wrong and foolish to build the bigger barn or to get the nicer house or to buy a nicer car or to uh, fill in the blank. Now, hear me on this. Unlike our man in the parable, we all need to carry with us an awareness of the unique ability we all have that when we want something, we will create an airtight case to go and get that thing. We all need to be aware of that, that when we want it, we'll we'll give 13 reasons why it is that we should go have it. And it will be airtight. We don't let people into that. No one can disagree with that. Not even God can disagree with that. We need to be aware of that tendency in us. But for some, you can be totally in the will of God and have a bigger barn. While for others, it would be 100% disobedient. Now, notice here, what makes it right or wrong is not his ability to afford it. He could afford it, right? It wasn't an issue of did he have enough money to go and do it. That's not the issue here. He could afford it. He did it. And Jesus called him a fool for doing it. The problem in this parable is that he came to this conclusion to to build the bigger barn apart from the direction and the leadership and the yes of God. That was the problem. He did not consult God. He, he moved without God's answer in this moment, which leads to the third problem. First problem, the question was to the wrong person. Second problem, he came to the wrong conclusion. Third problem is that he had the wrong motives. Look at verse 19. Why did he build the bigger barn? Here it is. And I will say to my soul, here's the reason I'm building it, soul. So it's, it's so I can say this to you, soul. So you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, does that sound like the dream called retirement that almost every American is living for? Just ask yourself, look at verse, read verse 19 and just ask yourself, does that sort of sound like the motive underneath Americans living for retirement. 
saving for retirement, wanting retirement. They're, they're in retirement. And, and this logic, this mode of relax, eat, drink, and be merry is under it. Uh, let's think about the American dream for just a moment. Here's, here's kind of the play out of the American dream. You take risk early in life. You get your wild side out. You go to college, right? You get a degree. Then you find your groove. You get a clue. That's one thing that needs to happen in your 20s, right? And you get a career. Uh, you start to make something of your life. There's your 20s. Then you start to settle and establish. You start to climb the ladder. You start to get promotions. You work up to the window office. You've got the things working in life. Uh, you're, you're settling and establishing. Then you earn and save. You upgrade the house. You upgrade the car. You get bigger things and better things. You build for the future. You've got to figure out at some point what a portfolio means, right? What an IRA means. This is, this is earning and saving. And then you consolidate and you maintain speed. You get those possessions stockpiled and you want the biggest pile of possessions that you can possibly get. And then after you get the pile, you protect the, the pile, right? All that so you can get ready for the last few years. That, that, the last third of your life uh, in something we call retirement. This is what we've been waiting for, right? It is the season of our life. Those years where we get to relax, eat, drink and be merry. This is where we downshift in life, right? Uh, we downshift, we put it on cruise control at a whole 26 miles per hour. I mean, we, we are doing the thing. We are eating at Luby's, right? We are getting our golf game back. Into, I mean, we are doing it. It is retirement. It is fully on. Now hear me. Welcome to the dream that millions of Americans are living for. And Jesus uses that dream to illustrate a fool. The dream that millions of people are living for, Jesus uses to illustrate what it means to be a fool. And I just wonder if God could lay our hearts open today if we might not find that same motive that Jesus called foolish in us. Now, I, I want to be clear here. I want to I make sure you're hearing me clearly. I am not saying retirement is bad. The issue isn't retirement or saving for it, just like the issue in this parable is not necessarily the person's bigger barns, the man's bigger barns. There are good biblical reasons and motives for retirement. Uh, my concern is that so few people have right, godly, biblical motives for it. Most people have bad motives for it. So if your motive is, I want a season to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Translated, I've worked all of my life. I've raised my kids. I've paid my dudes. I, I've had all the inconveniences that, that I'm going to put up with in my life. So leave me alone. I want a season of convenience and comfort. So don't ask me to be inconvenienced. Don't ask me to sacrifice and pour out my life for, for Jesus' agenda and for the kingdom of God. I am done with that because I've already done that. So don't ask me to do any more of that. To anyone thinking like that, Jesus says, you are a fool. But if your motive in saving and building bigger barns and retirement is so that you can have ample goods laid up so that you are now free, absolutely free to pour out your life 
in every endeavor, in every risk, in every inconvenience that Jesus would put before you, then by all means retire and get ready to pour out your life. Jesus would call that wisdom. Now, I want to take a moment to just linger here, and I want to address all of just the saints among our church family who are either in retirement or approaching those years in that season of your life. I just first want to say, um, you, are such, you are such a precious resource in our church family. We just would not be, we would be a weaker church without you in it. So I just want to first say, we just thank God for you. You're such a gift to this church family. And secondly, you know, one of my roles as your pastor is to make sure that you don't waste the last third of your life. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for, I don't want that for any of us in the room. Retirement has the potential to be one of the most fruitful seasons of your life. God has blessed you with a measure of wisdom and life experience. But if you worship comfort in your retirement years, you will waste them. They'll be wasted. You'll let them dry up and shrivel that they will not be used well. I mean, just look across our church. There's hundreds and hundreds of young families. What if your ambition is to pour out your life to see Jesus formed in them? Inconvenience, sacrifice, to see that happen in them. Just think in a billion years from now, what will be more valuable to you? Spending the last few years of your life in comfort and convenience or pouring out your life in every endeavor, risky endeavor, sacrificial endeavor that Jesus would call you to. In a billion years from now, there's no question what will be more valuable to you. So I just want to plead with you, do not be a fool in this last season of your life. Get, get ready to pour out your life for everything that Jesus would want for you. And here's the fourth reason. Here's the fourth reason Jesus calls him a fool, is this man was blind to big realities. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He was blind to big realities. Uh, big realities like the brevity of life, he was blind to the brevity of life. Uh, isn't it ironic that while this man was drawing up the blueprints for his barn, God was drawing up the blueprints for his obituary? Isn't that ironic? That this guy was so engrossed in his plans that he never stopped to consider the possibility that he'd never get to enjoy them. That just never factored into the way he was seeing or thinking. Just, it just never crossed his mind. And this is what money and possessions do. They seduce us into short-sightedness. This is why the Psalms teach us to pray, oh God, teach me to number my days. This is why James warns us against presumptuous planning. As if we have forever, we don't have forever. So just look at the way that you're seeing your life. Does the way that you're planning for the future factor in that you may find yourself standing before God tomorrow? So it's the way that you're saving. It's the way that you're, you're, you're thinking about 10 years from now, 30 years from now. Does it factor in that you just might be before God tomorrow? 
If not, Jesus says you're a fool. He was blind to the brevity of life. He was blind to the fleeting nature of money and possessions. It just, it just didn't cross his mind. This man was blind to the fact that earthly treasures, they all fade, that they grow dim, they are destroyed over time. In a hundred years from now, the things you treasure most will be in the trash. Isn't that a humbling thing to know? They'll be in the trash. They'll be in a dump somewhere. He, he was blind to the fleeting nature of money and possessions. And he was blind to what really matters in the end. Now hear me about this man. This man had much wealth, but it was all of the wrong kind. He was wealthy, he just had the wrong kind of wealth. There is a big difference between being rich and being rich toward God, and only one matters in the end, and that's being rich toward God. Only one matters. So what does it mean to be rich toward God? It means that more and more you're seeing God as supremely valuable as your greatest resource of wealth and riches in your life. Practically, it means that you're using all of the earthly sort of riches that God has entrusted to you to show that God is more valuable than your wealth. It means you're leveraging your wealth and what God's entrusted to you for the good of God's purposes and God's agenda. This is how we become rich toward God. This man was a fool. Why was he a fool? Listen to one author talk about it. He says it this way. He was literally and tragically a damned fool. Now, why is that? He goes on to say, here's the way I would put it. By the way he used the increase of his riches, he gave no indication of being rich toward God. He kept building bigger barns. That might be okay if you're storing the grain for a use that shows God is your treasure. But what does this farmer say? Verse 19, I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years, so relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The use he plans to make of his wealth says one thing, my treasure, what I value more than anything else is relaxing and eating and drinking and fun. That is my life. And the riches in his barns make it possible. What's wrong with that? Nothing if there's no infinitely valuable God and no resurrection. But there is a God and there is a resurrection. So what's wrong with this man's way of handling his riches is that he fails to use them in a way that shows he treasures God more than his riches. I just want to offer you space and time today to consider this for yourself. If you're going to put yourself into this parable, can you see yourself in the shoes of this rich man? Now, I want to end here. I want to end by helping us think through how do we guard against greed? How do we do that? And I want to allow the rest of this passage kind of flowing out of this parable to give us some help in that. And this passage, what follows, um, shows us two things we need to know and one thing we can do. Two things to know to guard against greed and one thing to do. So let me just run through these briefly here. How to guard against greed. Now, one thing we have to know is that God is our father. He is our dad. The reason we worry so much about money is because we so easily forget God. 
We, we so easily forget that God is, is our dad who cares for us and loves us and promises to provide for us. So, so Jesus says in verse 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love twice in those verses, Jesus reminds us, this is the name of your God. He, he goes by name and, and that name is Father. You can call him something other than God. You can actually call him Dad. Isn't that an amazing truth? Listen, for every one of us in the room, we were created with the fundamental need to be fathered by God. You were, I, I it was created that way. We've all been created that way. And in this passage, Jesus is reminding us if, if you're in Christ, then you are in God's family. You are a son or daughter of God. And I just want to remind you of that today. That, that God is your dad. And as your dad, he promises to provide, to help. You, part of what greed does is make us feel like an orphan. And part of what I just want to remind you of today is you're not an orphan. You are an adopted son or daughter of God if you're in Christ. God is our father. But we can't just know God is our father. We also have to know that God is faithful. So it's not just that he's our father, it's that he is a faithful father. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. Yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? A raven. One of my friends calls a raven a rat with wings. That's what a raven is, right? And God is saying here, a raven doesn't have barns. They don't have some huge bank account where they can buy some, some seeds when they need it, where they can buy some food when they, they don't have any of those things. And you know what happens? God cares for them. God feeds them. And it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's God saying, if, if I care for birds, rats with wings like that, how much more you, my, my son, my, my daughter. I was thinking about Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16 this week, where we're reminded in the scriptures, I love this question. Um, it says, can a woman forget her nursing child? It's a rhetorical question. The answer should follow, no, a, a woman can't do that. There's just no way a mom could forget a nursing child. And then it goes on. Even these may forget though. Even a mom may forget her, her, her child. Yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. And listen to what he goes on to say. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isn't that an amazing text? Isn't it amazing to know that God has a tattoo with your name on it? Right there on his hand for all of those who are in Christ. He'll never forget you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to leave you needy. He's, he's promised to give you everything you need in your life. Then look at verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O 
you of little faith. Jesus is just saying, look at the flowers. Do you see them? If God would care for them like that, how much you sons and daughters. May we be reminded today that Jesus He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again on the third day for us, not just to deliver us from sin, but to deem you and I as a child of God, to to bring us into God's family. And God cares about his kids. He cares about them. And and Jesus is saying, "Let, let let the birds preach that to you. Let the grass preach that to you. And I might just add this, let the cross preach that to you. I mean, when you look at the cross of Christ, you are seeing a picture of just how much God cares for you. Just how much God loves you. He loves you so much, he would sacrifice his beloved son for you. And if he would not spare his own son, what else would he withhold from you? God, our faithful Father, can be trusted. And until we trust God, our faithful Father, we will never have any measurable distance from greed in our life. So we've got to know those things. Deep down in our bones, that sort of a knowing, God is a faithful Father. And then there's one thing we can do. One thing we can do. And that is to give generously. To give generously. Look at verse, uh, starting in verse 29. Jesus says, and do not seek what, what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Now, I think this is such an interesting text because in a lot of ways, Jesus is saying here, the way that you think about money and possessions, the way you relate to money and possessions should be in stark contrast to the way the world sees and relates to money and possessions. There should be a huge difference. It's one of the ways that you stand out as a light among the nations, pointing people to Jesus. But by implication, you can't be a light to the nations if we are like the nations. If we relate to money and possessions in the exact same way the world does, we're not going to be a light to the world in these ways. And Jesus is saying here that the way the world relates to to, to money and possessions is as an orphan, as someone who is fatherless, but you have a dad. And he just happens to be God. And so you can relate to all these things in a different way now. Then you get to verse 31. He says, instead seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Verse 33. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Church, giving, generously giving is one way we guard against greed. Every time you give generously, you are saying to your heart, my life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. My life consists and it just is made up of God. Every time you give generously, you're saying that to your heart. It's one of the primary ways we can fight against greed in our life. And one of the instant questions that arises is, well, how much should I give then? Well, I would just first say, why don't you ask Jesus that? I'm sure he would love to talk to you about that. If you're a son or daughter of his, he would love to have that conversation with you. 
Now, broadly, we could say that the Bible, um, in a broad way, teaches something called the tithe. It's giving 10% of our income. But at the same time, we would also say that the New Testament leans away from percentages and toward sacrificial giving. That, that's the ethic and giving of the New Testament. So I, I think we could summarize it this way, that we should always be giving to the point that we are reminding our hearts that our security and our significance and our satisfaction is not going to be found in money and possessions, but in God. Give until your heart is believing that and feeling that. But, but giving generously is not just how we guard against becoming greedy. It's not just how we guard against becoming the rich fool in this parable. It's also, giving generously is also, listen to this, how we become rich forever. It's how you become rich forever. Or as Jesus says it, it's how you provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. I mean, look at verse 33. Jesus is not asking you to renounce your wealth, but to relocate it in the only place where you can enjoy it forever. Can you picture the moment when you're standing before Jesus one day? It's going to come far sooner than many of us think. Just picture that moment. You are before Jesus. In that moment before Jesus, can I just tell you what I don't think you're going to be saying? In that moment, I don't think there's going to be a person in here look back over their life and think, you know what I really wish would have happened? I wish I would have kept a little more for me. I wish I would have hoarded a little bit more, stockpiled a little bit more. I, I wish I would have saved just a little. I wish I would have done all of those. I just wish I would have done more of that. I don't think that's going to be any of our conversations in that day. But I think there will be many of us who one day we're standing before the Lord and we look back over our life with just a hint of sadness and with a hint of grief as we as we feel deep in our bones, I wish I'd have just been more open to Jesus in this area. I, I wish I would have been more eager to step in and meet those needs. I wish I would have been quicker to give in a way that would have hurt. I wish I actually would have gotten to a place of sacrifice in my giving. I wish I would have given all the way to the point that it's reminding me that my life does not consist in this money, but in God. I wish... I wish I would have done that. And in light of that, church, here's the amazing thing about this morning. Jesus has gifted us this parable. He's gifted us a moment as a church family to consider it, to sit under it. And it is an opportunity from God to let parts of our heart awaken right now before it's too late, before we're actually standing before God. And so church, may we be on guard against greed, knowing that our life does not consist in possessions, but in our faithful Father. Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful today. to wipe away the things that 
not be helpful. When it comes to the most urgent need of the morning, I think that need is just answering this question first and foremost. Is God your father? Is he your dad? And there's only one way into the family of God, and that is through the person of Jesus. And has there been a moment where you have taken that decisive step toward Jesus, where you have turned from all the sin that you know disqualifies you, and you have hurled your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, where you've just offered God your life and said, God, I'm trusting Jesus to make me right with you. God, will you save me? Will you forgive me? And God, our generous God, just stands so ready to do that today. So there where you are, if that's you, if this is your day to make that decisive step, there where you are, you can cry out to God in the best way you know how. And God would love to rescue and redeem and save you this morning. And for the rest of us, may we be on guard. May we take care. And God, would you help us in that? God, will you show us where greed has lodged itself in us like the squatter who has come in and will not leave? God, we need eyes to see through our own blindness. So God, would you give us new eyes to see, new ears to hear? And God, would you make us into a joyfully generous people? And it's in the good name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.